0: This is Mike Livermore, and with me today is Mitu Guladi and Lee Bukite, both world-class experts on sovereign debt. Lee spent several decades at the law firm Cleary Gottlieb, where he was a major figure in the legal wrangling in the wake of many different foreign debt crises. Uh, the, Garden, the Guardian uh, newspaper once referred to Lee as, quote, a fairy godmother to finance ministers in distress. Uh, Mitu is a colleague here at UVA Law. We're very lucky to have him. Uh, he writes on a wide range of topics, including sovereign debt restructuring. He also co-hosts the podcast "Clauses and Controversies," which is a lot of fun, and listeners should definitely check that out uh, if they're interested in the conversation that we have today. But just to get us started, I thought we might kind of begin with um, how you got your start, how you guys both got your start in sovereign debt practice. So. Um, so Lee, what what drew you to that area as you know as something that you wanted to devote your career to?
1: Well, uh, thanks, Mike. I, I appreciate the invitation to be on with you, you folks. Um, it was, as so much else in life, pure serendipity. Hmm. I had been posted to my firm's London office in the late seventies uh, and early eighties, <clears throat> and this was the end of the syndicated loan boom. Hmm. So the great boom that uh, followed the oil shocks in the mid-1970s. Um, and I got back to Washington. Just well, Washington was my home office just a couple of months before Mexico declared a moratorium on payment of its external debt. Mm -hmm. And I got a phone call from a colleague in New York, and he said, son, you've been doing these syndicated loans, you must know how to restructure them. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, oh, sure, sure. (laughs) Uh, Little did we know that uh, the the circumstances afflicting Mexico uh, afflicted 24, 27 other countries, and all of them would be driven into a full-scale debt restructuring within the matter of a couple of years. Mm. But working then on Mexico, which was very much the flagship restructure in the 1980s, uh, uh, many of the countries that followed Mexico called my firm, and uh, we had the the privilege of of helping them. But I realized almost from the moment it started that this was for me because the legal elements in it at that time was very, very small. No one had done this since the 1930s. And so uh, the legal component was probably 25% uh, politics, both domestic and international uh, were 50% 50% and the remaining 25 was pure theater and my my weak spot has always been the law so <laughs> i figured this this was perfect for me and i just decided to make it my life's work and have done it for 40 years
0: yeah that's 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 fascinating it is interesting how those early serendipitous experiences end up just shaping our life paths yeah how about you? Me too. How did you get interested in in this general area of laws as a as a, as a kind of object of scholarly inquiry?
2: Oh, I think I think by mistake. Well, I was a junior associate, like I think you were, uh, a long time ago at this firm, Cleary Gottlieb, where Lee was one of the superstars, and I, I didn't know anything about sovereign debt. I, turns out this is actually stuff that my father used to work on, but I didn't even know what he did. But I wanted to do foreign travel. The whole point of going to one of these fancy Wall Street firms, I thought, was, I want to travel business class someday. (laughs) And and I I had heard Lee Bukite, like, he's the ticket to go business class to exotic (laughs) locations. (laughs) (laughs) So I tried. There was a long line. I mean, he was the star, so everybody wanted to work with him. But the barrier to entry, other people did not realize as quickly, maybe because, you know, I, I... I have a devious mind. Was uh, flowers and chocolates to his assistant, and then (laughs) you could jump the queue. And then Lee got stuck. I think she told him, "There's only one person who wants to work with you." That was me.
0: (laughs) Very smart. Very smart. How long did you guys work together at the firm?
2: Oh, not that long. I think our research collaboration. We became friends Mm -hmm. and. Lee quickly realized that, you know, that I was sort of an incompetent lawyer. (laughs) And he's the one who sent me away. If I remember correctly, uh, a judge called Lee and said, I I need a law clerk. Uh, One of my law clerks is... has gotten pregnant or is, there was some, something that got it started and Lee told me, he said, you're not very good at this job.
0: Maybe
1: you should try something else. <laughs> I never said that. I yeah, said I,
2: that. I, I think it was, he encouraged me to try other avenues in life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> think about this academic thing. Maybe that'll work out. For yes, <laughs> yes.
2: But then some, a couple of years later, he, he had this um, client, Ecuador, and had an idea for a transaction that we had talked about, but it seemed legally dubious at the start. So he said, maybe this is something that, you know, you and your students can think about. And we started thinking about it. And as 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 we thought about it in class, uh, we ended up thinking... This could actually work, and so Lee and I wrote an article about uh, that transaction he he implemented it uh, and we've written at least one article every year since then, and that was probably twenty five years ago
0: yeah, yeah that's it's really wonderful maybe just for for an audience that's unfamiliar with the with the world of sovereign debt, we could just start with you know, some basics to kind of situate ourselves. So, so one question that, that I think kind of naturally arises, you know, you know, we're in the U S and, you know, we know that the U S government borrows a a lot of money and that there's a substantial amount of of debt. Um, But it just is a is a basic question why why does the U.S. Treasury borrow money? Why, you know, there's other ways of getting money. We can tax. We can, um, you know, the U.S. government's actually in a position to um, to print money. So, what's the what, what's the advantage of, of debt versus these other ways of you know pr- putting you know little green pieces of paper into the into the federal uh, tr- treasury?
1: Well the answer is politics Uh, part of it is politics Uh, the only honorable way as a politician sees it that you can (laughs) get money um, is borrowing it the alternatives are politically unpalatable Hmm. they are taxing Mm -hmm. uh, which no one seems to want to do or cut expenditures which no one seems to want to do so uh, if you're a government and you spend more than you take in, that's called a budget deficit. The only way to cover the budget deficit is uh, to tax more, spend less, both of those are politically uh, unpalatable, or you can borrow and Borrowing has borrowing is in one sense, an intergenerational sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, some poor devil sometime in the future is going to have to restrict their standard of living in order to service that obligation. But from a, pol- a politician' standpoint, the principal virtue of that poor devil is he or she <laughs> hasn't been born yet. Doesn't vote. And they certainly can't vote. Uh, now, you ask the other question, which is, why not just print this stuff? After all, we do have the printing press. Uh, and there is a theory, uh, very popular in certain quarters now, called mm-hmm. modern monetary theory, which is just that. Let's just print all we need. The the answer to that is that fiat currencies, that is currencies like the U.S. dollar that are backed by nothing other than uh, an assumption on the part of everyone who holds them that they will be able to use them to buy a pound of butter or to pay your taxes or whatever it is. the value that the currency will have is to some degree linked to its scarcity. Mm-hmm. And if you simply printed endless amounts of money, you'd find yourself looking more like Weimar than than you want to. And so it is. it is principally inflation that is the worry with simply opening up the printing presses, plus the fact no one <laughs> believes that if the U.S. Congress thought that it could spend all the money it wanted <laughs> just by hitting a button on a printing press, my heavens, Bernie Sanders would think that he had died and gone to nirvana.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's a constraint on on, on spending, basically. Yeah, yeah. Know. And I assume that the position in the United States is different from, from other countries. I mean, you know, I think the... The the new monetary folks and and others would argue that the U S is in a special position. I could we could argue one could presumably argue about that, but presumably printing just printing money isn't um, kind of even in the cards for a place like Mexico or um, uh, you know Bolivia or. Um, yeah. Other jurisdictions, so, and 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 is, what are the spe- so what are the special factors that would make that you know that option especially and the taxation op- option obviously can be very difficult when you have a substantially reduced tax base. So what are the what are the factors that affect these these kinds of decisions for developing countries, especially
1: the United States, along with. A couple of other countries like Japan has the inestimable benefit uh, of borrowing, being able to borrow in its own currency. Mm. So at one level, putting inflation aside, at one level, no creditor of the United States of America need worry that the U.S. will not have the money to pay them back. Right. because
0: it's, uh, it's dollar, just to reiterate, because it's it's a dollar denominated thing. So the U.S. Exactly. government can get its hands on dollars as much as it, as much as it wants.
1: Exactly. Uh, no Mexican finance minister can say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, when you lend to a Mexico, you're taking a risk that when the time comes to repay, the country will not be able to raise either by exporting goods and earning dollars or borrowing dollars mm-hmm. uh, the money to repay you we also have the uh, uh, uh enormous benefit of being the world's only reserve currency mm-hmm. and what that means is that <laughs> you've got almost a, a captive audience of central banks and others out there who need to buy your obligations um so the, the, we enjoy huge advantages, <laughs> and Mike, we take full advantage of <laughs> right. it. Right,
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, I think people don't don't realize, you know, many folks in the U.S. don't realize how advantageous the, the, the United States government is in these, you know, in these markets. And then we all are beneficiaries of that situation. Yes. It's really yes. incredible. So, um, so who owns this? You know, so I can buy treasury um, bills and, you know— um, Presumably, that's how some some foreign debt is held, but um, I doubt that's the the lion's share. So, who's kind of on the other side of the transaction? We know that there are the the, the there are the borrowers, the, the states, and and who's on who's on the other side? Who's buying this debt?
1: Well, um, today <laughs> the principal buyer is the Federal Reserve and the US Social Security Administration. Uh, What has happened since the financial crisis of 2008 is that in order to stimulate uh, the economy, uh, the world's large central banks, like the Fed and the European Central Bank and the Bank of England, have been pursuing a policy called quantitative easing what it what it means in practical terms is that they buy the debt of their own government that creates demand that reduces the interest rate that the government would have to pay on that debt and that reduction in the interest rate ripples through to all borrowers uh public and private and Uh, encourages people to borrow money, uh, build new factories, and so forth. So right now, uh, an enormous buyer of U.S. debt is the United States. (laughs) You might think that is incestuous, but uh, it's the reality. Other central banks buy uh, a lot of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. The the Chinese hold uh, more than a trillion dollars of it. Uh, and then you've got uh, investors, sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, that need to invest their money in something that they regard as safe, a safe store of value. So, and
0: that now this is U.S. this is U.S. debt, which is
1: considered safe
0: yeah. um, for various reasons. And, and what about the, the the kinds of debt that you've often found yourself working on? You know, in in, in places like Mexico, who who's who. Are the, the typical parties that own that, that kind of debt of you know countries that are not kind of as well uh, fiscally positioned as the United States?
1: Well, for an emerging market country, there are likely to be three categories of creditors. there will be the multilateral institutions, the Bretton Woods institutions that were set up at the end of the Second World War, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, the World Bank. Uh, the regional development banks, Asian Development Bank, African Development Bank, et cetera. Then you have what we call bilateral creditors. These are government-to-government loans. And then commercial creditors. They can be a wide variety. They can range from commercial banks to institutional investors, the Aetna Insurance Company, the Fidelity Mutual Fund, sovereign wealth funds, the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, to so-called hedge funds, uh, private invest investment vehicles um, that buy sovereign debt. And within that category, uh, you have a subgroup that specialize in what they euphemistically call distressed sovereign assets. mm
0: uh-huh. So you've worked in a lot of instances where sovereigns have gotten themselves into trouble one way or the other, where essentially they 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 can't pay their their debt back. So so how does this happen? I mean, is it just you know like like I know if I ever find myself where I can't pay my debt back, I mean that might be because I made bad decisions. It could be because of an external shock that. Um, was unexpected what what are the kinds of situations that that result in in sovereigns kind of unable to to make their you know m- you know meet their commitments?
1: I would say there are three types. the most uh, forgiving are circumstances where the country is hit by an external shock. Mm-hmm. so the the hurricane, Mm -hmm. the tidal wave in Indonesia, uh, the earthquake, Mm -hmm. um, or a pandemic Mm -hmm. uh, that causes severe disruption to the world's economy and uh, makes it impossible for the country to export its commodities. Uh, There's no culpability Mm -hmm. with those things, and so they're frankly easier to deal with. Um in most cases, the cause of the country's problems will be chronic fiscal mismanagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, a country that, for the reasons we just described, the local politicians find it easier to borrow uh, than to trim the public sector payroll or limit pensions Mm -hmm. or tax. Um, And so the debt relentlessly accumulates. And at some point you see these countries are completely dependent upon the willingness of new investors to lend them the hard currency needed to repay what they already owe. Mm -hmm. And if those investors get skittish Uh, They will, in the first instance, increase the interest rate that they want to charge for those loans, but in the final uh, instance, will cease lending altogether. This is Greece in the spring of 2010, Uh, 300 billion euros, all in the form of bonds, Uh, and no one wanted to buy Greek debt anymore. Uh, so what do you do? Mm-hmm. But de- a, a final cause is sometimes just a buildup of debt stocks at a time when it is easy to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this afflicts commodity exporters in particular. So oil goes to $100 a barrel and you're an oil exporter. Well, a lot of people will lend you money, mm-hmm. and it isn't too hard for a finance minister to persuade himself or herself that um, if everyone wants to lend me money, I'll I'll take it. Mm-hmm. And then oil goes back to forty dollars a barrel, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, and and then you've got an unsustainably large debt stock.
0: Got it. So these are so you, so you have these different causes, and they're you know presumably they can be a, they can be mixed up with each other as well as that you could have mm-hmm. some mismanagement and then an external shock or some you know unpredictability in, in commodity prices and and things come to a head and it becomes clear that um, you know that that the that the country's in trouble. And presumably, they, they they call Lee Bukite or someone in a similar position, and, and they say, you know, what do we do? Like, we literally don't have enough money coming in. You know, we could, if we try to raise taxes, you know, more, we're worried that it's going to, um, you you know, depress the economy and, and, and tamp down on, on growth, you, what are, what are our options? And, and, and so what is, what are, what are some of the answers that are, you know, just in, in kind of broad strokes, what, what are some of the answers to that question?
1: Well, history says that countries facing those situations tend to delay, uh, Announcing the need for a debt restructuring as long as they can. Mm. Uh, History says that politicians demonstrate a pathological procrastination. Mm. Why? Because debt restructurings are disagreeable Mm. always. Uh, And if you can put it off to the next administration, Mm -hmm. that that looks awfully good. If you can't, normally, not invariably, but normally, the country would go to the International Monetary Fund Mm. and say, we need assistance in the form of a stabilization program. The fund uh, will send a team of economists down. And the first thing the team of economists will do is say, well, you've got These weaknesses in your economic policies, and we want you to fix them as a condition to the program, and that can often be politically uncomfortable uh, because the weaknesses are the very things that the politicians uh, did not want to do on their own, like raise taxes or collect taxes. Um, And then... The country and the IMF will usually say if your debt is unsustainable, not usually, it will always say Mm. if your debt is unsustainable as they reckon it uh, sustainability, they will tell you that you need to do some form of debt restructuring. So you need to go to some or all of your creditors and ask for some form of debt relief. And that then launches you into a discussion with your bilateral creditors, mm-hmm. your government creditors, and your commercial creditors.
0: And then, and and so, so these conversations get started. And presumably, what the you know what the issuer here, the country, says is, "Look, we can't pay back our our debt at, on the current terms. Um, you know what what can you what can you do for us?" And and it just. You know, presumably everyone's in a position where, if if it's broadly recognized that this is the case, that a restructuring is going to be necessary, the the lenders want to get as much out of the out of their existing debt as they can, and the and the borrowers want to pay as little as possible. So, so how how do they possibly come to an agreement in these circumstances?
1: <laughs> Usually, with great difficulty. Yeah. Uh, the I, the IMF will conduct something called a debt sustainability analysis. That's a forward-looking projection, uh, uh, which really says, based on certain assumptions about the economy of the country, uh, how much can the country reasonably afford to pay in external debt service? And by reasonably, I mean... uh, Every country, I guess, is theoretically capable of servicing its external debts if it took extraordinary Mm. measures. I remember one creditor telling me, we simply don't understand why you don't sell Patagonia to the Chileans. (laughs) I remember another one saying, you know, you could get a wonderful price for the Acropolis. (laughs) Uh, These are... Uh, these are measures that are obviously politically impossible off the table. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yes, you can ratchet down austerity on the economy, but uh, it is in the first instance, an enormous political problem. Mm -hmm. And it is in the final instance, a moral problem. Do you let your citizens go without food education uh, and, and, and medicine in order to pay hedge funds in Greenwich, Connecticut. Right. That's, how it's, that's how it's viewed. So the IMF makes that basic judgment, how much you can afford to pay, and then typically the country will cling to that and say to its creditors, look, this is the quantum of debt relief we need. And the discussion then becomes who provides it, the commercial creditors will want the bilateral creditors to do it the bilateral creditors will want the commercial creditors the bondholders will want the bank loans the banks will want the bondholders etc cetera, etc cetera. and so that is the negotiation process mm-hmm. that the country is launched on
0: yeah and it's, it's it's really interesting in that in the, the the kind of examples that you're giving of how obviously and deeply normative, the question of kind of how much can the country, you know, can a country pay is, Um, you know, and that, I think that can get lost in some of these debates. It's not just a kind of a technical question um, about what, you know, what, what the capacity is. There's, there's just these kind of, you know, moral limits. And of course, you know, obviously, if you do too much austerity and you stop feeding your population, it's not going to be good for long-term economic growth. So there's, um, you know, there's some of those issues in there. But, you know, just kind of as we're thinking about the normative implications of of these, you know, broadly kind of sovereign debt issues, you know, y you've worked with a lot of, of countries in, in these situations and I, I recall at various points, you know, over the last several decades, you know, general kind of broader public conversations about debt, especially for the least developed countries and and the role that debt has in in potentially uh, you know, impeding economic growth and development. It, it, do you have views on that? Is, is the current structure of, of global debt a, a, a serious impediment to development? Are there things that we should be thinking about very broadly um, to, to change the system? Or are we in an equilibrium that is, you know, maybe not uh, desirable on every dimension, but a kind of reasonable, um, you know, a reasonable accommodation of different interests?
1: Well, I think the first thing, Mike, to realize is, Uh, Not all debt is bad. Not all debt is good. Uh, Borrowing money uh, to uh, build the bridge, build the road, uh, build the factory uh, that encourages economic growth, uh, that is benign. Uh, The problem usually arises when the country is borrowing the money simply to cover chronic budget deficits. Mm-hmm. Uh, the politicians just don't want to tax because tax and you don't get reelected. Um, for a while, the borrowing cushions uh, disagreeable consequences for the citizenry. They, they're they not aware of it, usually, because no politician stands up and says, friends, I'm not going to raise your taxes this year because J.P. Morgan is prepared to lend us the money. Right. But for a while, they're the beneficiaries. But that quickly runs out at the time that the country can no longer borrow to refinance, repay what it's already uh, incurred then cometh the imf and the imf will say you've got to raise taxes mm-hmm. cut the subsidies on cooking oil uh reduce your public sector workforce cut public sector pensions and all of a sudden uh the average citizen on the street says oh my gosh uh, uh this debt crisis is having direct and immediate consequences. And by the way, this is a common thing. Uh, They don't remember because they never appreciated that the incurring of the debt Mm -hmm. saved them from some of these disagreeable things. They will also say a lot of the debt was simply squandered. Mm You know, it went to corruption. It Mm -hmm. went to uh, build a statue of the dictator or whatever. So we never saw any benefit, but we're the poor devils that have to pay for it now that the IMF is here and we have to render our reform our economy to make us presentable once again in the market um, so that we can return to this idea of. Borrowing money to repay what you already owe.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it just, it's 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 no it's no fun no fun all around. Me too. Me too. I was wondering if you had thoughts on this. Just the I know it's a big question, but just the general relationship between um, you know high debt loads and and development is it a is it a red herring or is it a really serious issue?
2: Oh, I I think. I think this is a giant Ponzi scheme that we are in right now, especially given the much higher levels of borrowing that we have seen across the globe during the COVID crisis. Mm. And uh, I would have thought that we would have given some consideration to the fact that debt levels are increasing, growth rates in many parts of the world are decreasing. In some parts of the world where, you know, the economies are completely dependent on tourism, they're down to near zero, and that this will come crashing down mm-hmm. uh, But we aren't. We're pretending that the easy money being generated by the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank and the low interest rates that the developed world has faced, uh, that's just going to keep going on and on and on. (laughs) And I I don't know. I think that uh, Lee, who thinks he might have been able to retire, is not going to be able to stop working anytime soon because... I mean, the, the these countries are already crashing, and uh, the debt restructurings—they're uh, not on the horizon. They, they're coming tomorrow, day after tomorrow. Uh, so, I, 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 I just think this is unfortunately we've had a little bit of respite, but disaster is right here. It's not in the on the horizon.
1: Mm. And and, and Mike, yeah please. Mike let me let me give you the most poignant example of this in my career I was called in to help a country some years ago uh, not by the government authorities I was asked to to come down by the United Nations Development Program the UNDP uh, and you might say why answer It turned out the country was spending 60%, 60% Mm. of all the revenue the government collected in servicing its external debt. What that meant was that every other use of government resources, health, education, military, police, uh, were... The government was unable to provide them. And the UNDP, which had a very large office there, was frankly picking up the slack. Mm -hmm. So the UNDP said, uh, help them restructure their debt Mm -hmm. so that uh, more of the revenue can be deployed by the government in these uh, normal governmental functions and take the burden off of us. So and and uh, there are a lot of countries that uh, are paying 40, 50, even as much as 60 percent of government revenues in debt service.
0: Yeah, that's really staggering. Um, before I want I, I do want to turn to, um, to this really interesting deal that the two of you are working on that, that has some very interesting possible environmental um angles to it but before that I just i I, I just have to ask um in, in light of kind of what what me too was was just saying is you know I mean that sounds like uh, if 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 countries start to go into a kind of a cascading global crisis where they can't pay back their debt and presumably that has ramifications for the financial sector more generally, is that the kind of thing that could initiate a very serious financial, you know, kind of a global financial crisis? Or is it the kind of thing that's sufficiently kind of cordoned off or that the amount of money we're talking about isn't, you know, so massive that it might cause very real suffering and problems for um, the, you know, kind of affected countries, but it wouldn't kind of broadly propagate through the whole the whole financial system.
2: This is this is the really I mean this is the really big question. There's uh, there's a conflict in the international financial community. Maybe Lee will talk about it mm. about whether or not we're on the brink of just another Great Depression type Jeez. era, or that that we have figured out how to solve it by just pumping money into the system.
3: Mm-hmm
2: and Doesn't seem like two years you do that ago, forever. Yeah, two years ago, we, people were very worried. The IMF and the World Bank and the other international financial institutions put in place a couple of mechanisms, neither one of which has worked. The only thing that has worked is the easy money that sort of inadvertently worked. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it's. Uh, The solutions haven't worked and the easy money is now going to stop because I think the Fed and the ECB are worried about inflation. Sure.
1: Yeah, what we fear is a contagious debt crisis. That is a circumstance in which multiple countries would um, be unable to refinance their maturing debt at more or less the same time. Uh, classic example was the 1980s when you mm-hmm. had more than two dozen countries. We saw it a little bit in 1997 with the East Asian crisis, mm-hmm. well, when you had Thailand and and South Korea and Indonesia. But uh, that's, I think, what what worries people. For so long as the debt crises are in individual countries or a handful of countries, I think the system can absorb it. But uh, if if the circumstance were to spread, uh, it, it would have a profound effect on the world economy. As the Latin American debt crisis of the 1980s did, it nearly brought down the banking systems in the developed world. Hmm. And
0: so is this the kind of like on the order of magnitude of the of the 2008, you know, truly massive financial crisis and great recession recession? Or is it worse than that? Is it is it maybe not maybe not that severe or we just we don't know?
1: We don't know. But the difference is that this would have severe political ramifications mm. because you would have countries uh, slipping in in many cases, back into poverty. uh, And it it can be uh, geopolitically very disruptive.
2: And we have to, I mean, we have to remember that many of the countries that are in trouble in the sense that they have huge debt loads and potentially won't be able to keep borrowing to repay the interest on those huge debt loads uh, are still not out of the pandemic i mean in the in the west it's so tempting for us to think that especially in our little bubbles at universities to think that this is all over we're we're back to mm-hmm. normal when much of the world is not out of it they don't have high quality vaccines mm-hmm. And now they go into a severe debt crisis uh, um, and the debt loads are just so much bigger than they've ever been before that I'm, you know, I I am a pessimist. Maybe that you become a pessimist because you work on debt restructuring. So back of your mind, you pray for more debt restructurings, but this is not one I'm praying for.
0: Mm. Yeah, so um, that's uh, this is all uh, troubling, and kind of terrifying, and to maybe move us from one terrifying, troubling crisis to another one. Um, you guys are working on uh, kind of how this, you know, kind of came to my attention was um, a deal that kind of combines um, some of the uh, issues that we've been talking around about debt refinancing with uh, climate change and thinking broadly about how to. Um, uh kind of get the necessary resources that are needed really globally to to mitigate adapt to climate change and generally to address environmental problems um, around the world so uh so you both worked together on a, a transaction to restructure uh debt in Belize that had a, a an interesting environmental component to it it so maybe we could just talk a little bit you know in terms of a, it, might, it might be something of a bright spot thinking a, a little bit about how that how how that restructuring worked and is it the kind of thing that could be expanded to other contexts so what was the the broad outline of, of how that restructuring worked
2: i should clarify that that I, I, lee and i wrote an article about uh, sort of it depends on what Lee says, maybe the precursor to thinking about this. But uh, Lee worked on the actual Belize deal and I I did not. And then I wrote about it. So all credit and especially all blame goes (laughs) to Lee. But I I do think it is very exciting in the sense of if we do have a series of debt restructurings, maybe, just maybe, we can use that template to get some assistance for the environment as well. But, Lee, I'll I'll help you explain how you mucked things up.
1: Okay. (laughs) Well, uh, Belize. Belize, a country in Central America facing the Caribbean, Um, badly affected by the pandemic crisis. Uh, 40 to 50 percent of belize's gdp is is directly or indirectly tied to tourism Mm -hmm. and uh, of course the tourists stopped coming Uh, so it was a devastating blow the country had only one bond in the international markets uh, that had been placed back in 2007 it had always been troublesome the country uh, is regularly hit by hurricanes and droughts and things that make it difficult for it to, to uh, service its external debt. And we had restructured that bond three times in the last 13 years. Along came the Nature Conservancy, a non-governmental organization. and They said, look, we have a program in which we, the Nature Conservancy, will borrow money from the bond market and on lend it to you, Belize, to allow Belize to make an offer to repurchase that troublesome bond uh, at a deep discount. Uh, In return, Belize, which already had a pretty aggressive environmental conservation program, agreed that it would uh, accelerate that program uh, and have it monitored by the Nature Conservancy. That Those sorts of, of funds allowed Belize to make an offer to its bondholders to repurchase the bonds. Uh, there was a a long negotiation, as you can imagine, in the end, the price was just above 50 cents on the dollar. Uh, But at the end, the bid and asked for what the discount uh, was five points or so. Um, And Belize said, we can't afford to pay more than this, but. We tell you what we'll do. Uh, We will take a portion of the savings that this transaction produces for Belize, and we will pre-fund something called an endowment account that is managed by the Nature Conservancy. uh, And the annual earnings on that endowment account will be used in perpetuity to fund environmental conservation projects in belize particularly in the marine area belize has the second largest uh, barrier reef in the world and uh, it is uh, a place of enormous environmental diversity and and sensitivity and so protecting it is it is good for belize but it is good for the planet And this was an effort to appeal to the public statements by institutional, many institutional bondholders, that they are sensitive to what they call environmental social governance issues. Uh, and that they're looking for opportunities to demonstrate their support for that. Well, this was a tangible way in which they could do it. And so it was a technique used to bridge uh, the final step in the negotiation. But it, it will result in a significant amount of money being used in perpetuity to, uh, for environmental conservation.
2: So one thing that is, to me, very cool about it, but also raises the question of whether it can be reproduced elsewhere, is the amount. Lee didn't explicitly say this, but it's in much of the many of the press accounts, such as Tommy Stubbington's piece in the Financial Times, where investors said to him. Uh, that they basically gave Belize another five cents on the dollar. Now, Mm -hmm. to someone who doesn't work in this area, uh, this might not seem a lot. Belize needs a lot of relief. What's five cents on the dollar? But if you are following the literature on ESG and the greeniums and... it's tiny. So the, to the extent any greenium, meaning sort of the extra price benefit you get for being green and environmentally kosher, is it, tiny. It's like a few basis points. Uh, five cents on the dollar is hundreds of times more than what normally we think people are willing to give for environmental protection. So hmm. either this was just a fluke or Lee can do this magic uh, again but uh, th- there is this disjunction between the reality of what investors are willing to give and the the reality of what they were willing to give in
0: Belize. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let me just see if I just to re- reiterate the structure here just to see if I actually understand what's going on. So so Belize has creditors in the form of a bond the Nature Conservancy goes into into markets and and borrows money that it will presumably have to repay. Well, maybe that's just step one. Mm-hmm. Nature Conservancy will have to repay the money that it borrows. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So so Nature Conservancy borrows the money. Nature Conservancy lends the money to the lease, which then it, it goes out to the to the bondholders and says, look, you know we're we can't pay back all of our debt, but we're willing to buy back. These bonds at a discount. And this is what Me Too was talking about. we kind of what's the question of how much of a discount. And there's two factors that are going to affect how much of a discount. One is just Belize's financial situation, um, as kind of what we were talking about before, like how much can Belize actually afford to pay? And then there's this question of maybe Belize can get a little bit extra um, in terms of its deal. Um, because it is going to kind of have this arrangement with the nature conservancy and the environmental effects here are twofold. It sounds like, so one is in the terms of the debt agreement between the nature conservancy or the original agreement between the nature conservancy and Belize, you know, where, you know, believe uh, nature conservancy lends money to Belize for the, for this transaction. There's some agreement to engage in environmental conservation. And then in addition, there's this, ad- in, kind of the the creation of this endowment that is being funded kind of by the discount that Belize is getting on the debt repurchase is that in, in broad outlines did I did I did I repeat back to you what you said correctly or yes, <laughs> have yes. I missed something
1: yeah uh, uh, only uh, minor tuning on on the last bit of it mm-hmm. um, the quid pro quo for the nature conservancy lending this money to belize was belize accelerating its environmental protection program Mm -hmm. and allowing uh the nature conservancy to monitor it and all the rest of it so -hmm. those were promises that belize made to the nature conservancy
0: Got it. And then then, the endowment was a kind of a uh, second
1: thing that happened. Was a promise uh, that Belize made to its bondholders Mm -hmm. that said, we'll take a portion, not all, but a portion, but a portion that represented 1.3 percent of 2020 GDP. We'll take a portion of the savings and we will pre-fund this account that the Nature Conservancy is going to manage uh and it will be used in perpetuity for environmental conservation so that was a promise to the bondholders and in return for that or the request was that uh treat this if you want to put it in these terms as a kind of sweetener in effect uh, we're down to the last negotiation for how much the discount is uh we think we can afford to pay only this much you would like more we appreciate that but if you accede to our proposal we'll put this into the deal allowing you all to tell your shareholders your investors your regulators and the general public that you are acquitting your uh, environmental social governments uh, uh, promises and and, and objectives. Mm-hmm.
0: Great, yeah. This is. I mean, it sounds like on its face to be a really wonderful thing, right? So the the Belize gets the much-needed debt relief that it, um, you know, that it's after. The the bondholders get paid back, you know, at a discount. They they take mm-hmm. a, as they say in the business, that they take a haircut. Um, but part of that haircut comes with the ability to. Um, Look spiffy, so to speak, and and go out to the world and say that they're fulfilling their environmental um, kind of commitments, and 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 that's good from a PR perspective, and um, and the Nature Conservancy obviously is kind of engaged in this tr- transaction to protect the environment, and the and the environment gets, um, uh, you know, there's a there's a broad environmental benefit. So so it sounds, I mean. You know, of course, I'm a, I'm a skeptical law professor, so I wonder if it sounds too good to be true. So maybe that's just just one f- quick question: is, is is it too good to be true? Is is there some something hiding here that, um, you know that that if not, uh, the reasons to be skeptical that that actually this the story. Um, is, is as kind of win-win-win as it, as, it, as it first appears. Well,
1: the missing thing that we haven't talked about is uh, the loan that T, uh, the Nature Conservancy mm-hmm. is extending to Belize mm-hmm. uh, represents more than just Belize risk. There's a U.S. government agency, the Development Finance Corporation, Uh, Which is issuing a what they style a political risk insurance policy, which says that if ever Mm -hmm. Belize fails to pay, uh, Mm -hmm. this U.S. government agency will indemnify the 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 Nature Conservancy and ultimately the bondholders who are buying uh, the instrument that uh, is is the origin of all of these funds mm. uh they will ensure that if if ever they have to get an arbitral award against belize that that they'll indemnify the bondholders for that so that was an important a crucial element in this uh belize even even with retiring its bonds at a 50% discount still would not on its own have had the credit standing to uh, sell a bond directly or indirectly at a tolerable interest rate.
0: Hmm. And then, and this, and this kind of backstopped insurance, um, by, essentially by the U.S. government, um, was that kind of made possible because of the environmental characteristics of this deal? Or is that the kind of thing that um, you know, kind of shows up in the background of, of these restructurings more generally.
1: No, it doesn't. It, it, mm. it's, it's very rare. I think the U.S. government is doing this in part in support of its own professed uh, environmental climate uh, related uh, program. Uh, the things that you heard the president speak about in Glasgow this week. Sure, sure.
0: That's really interesting, and it's it's funny how, and again, this is like the world of policymaking. You know, there's the stuff that happens on the surface that we all see that's that is big and splashy, and then there's the very behind the scenes, you know, uh, you know, underwriting or insuring a transaction <laughs> that you know is is very obscure to the general public, but where that can really have important policy consequences.
1: Yes, indeed.
2: Yeah. Well, I was thinking that that's in some ways, such a key part of our prospects for doing these kinds of transactions in the future. Lee probably can't talk about countries that are on the brink of defaulting tomorrow, but, you know, you have countries like Sri Lanka that I love dearly and that have, you know, lots of coral reefs, but a huge debt stock. And if you had the international organizations and countries like the U.S. and also the European Union, if they're willing to say, look, we have something at stake here. If they engage in environmental protection, then there is a global good uh, that we get a benefit out of. They could really enable these debt restructurings to happen Hmm. in in a In a beneficial way in which we've never seen it happen before. Uh, I mean, the the way in which these these debt restructurings have always happened in the past uh, is, is what Lee described at the beginning, which is sort of, you know, the IMF makes this sustainability determination mm-hmm. and then the country has to, you know, do a lot of austerity and beat themselves on the chest and over the head about how terrible they've been and then they have to behave well. Now we're, we're thinking about it as, you know, as a global problem. It's not the fault of individual countries or individual dictators. It's just, uh, look, we, we had COVID crisis. Uh, that was a global problem. And we have environmental crisis And we need to fix these uh, with uh, official international help. Hmm. But I don't know. Maybe I'm too optimistic in the middle of being very pessimistic.
0: (laughs) Well, it's a good... Uh, you need something to leaven the, the the pessimism to get out of bed in the morning. So, so I mean, if, if we think broadly about this, I mean, is there any – I mean, you know, I care about the environment. Obviously, I, I teach in this area, and I write a lot about environmental issues. But I, I do wonder if there's anything special about the environment here. Is it possible that lenders could, you know, uh, facilitate – or the U.S. government, for that matter, facilitate transaction where similar types of endowments – that actually sounds like a particularly interesting kind of feature of this deal – were set up for it, things like infrastructure development or um healthcare or you know uh backstopping the 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 you know the government pensions or kind of various components of um a country's fiscal management or or, or spending that kind of broadly speaking people recognize are are good ways um for countries to be spending their money and in, in maybe areas where they underinvest in. Um is that is that is there a theoretical difference between those kinds of programs um, and the environment, or is it just that the kind of political stars align um, better on the on the environmental
1: expenditures? I think the latter. You could certainly use the the technique to finance a variety of projects uh, that, one way or another, would be motivated by societal. Good. Uh, the environment, and particularly uh, the climate issue, is a planetary problem. Uh, it will require a planetary <laughs> solution. And therefore, r- remember what we're talking about, particularly with commercial investors. You're asking them to forego. Uh, receipt of money that they're legally entitled to. There's no doubt about that. Um, and they will tell you, look, we have a fiduciary duty to the people who invest in our fund, our shareholders, our investors, uh, some of whom are, you know, the, the fire department pension fund. Pension fund. Uh, how do how do we justify to them leaving money on the table? Uh, Sure, it may do some good in your country, but uh, if we give the money back to our investors, they'll do some good in their country. Mm -hmm. So how do we, uh, the fact that climate and environment is so much in the forefront right now of being a planetary problem allows, I think, these financial intermediaries to justify to their own investors that this is something that's uh, not, we're not just benefiting, you know, the Republic of Ruritania, the borrower, we're benefiting all of us. Uh, and And that shared sacrifice, I think, is easier for them, to uh justify to their own constituents and that's why i think at the moment and the political winds may shift uh, mm-hmm. uh i think uh, to try to redirect these resources toward environmental conservation is easier
0: um, yeah, me, me too. Mentioned the the greenium, which I t- take to be a, a combination of green premium, and 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 I think the I, what I take to be the the greenium in this instance was was five cents on the dollar, five percent, which which does to me sound like an awful lot. Of, I'll, to be honest, I've always been you know somewhat skeptical of the kind of ESG um, conversation. I think there's a lot of optimism uh, about you know, private companies engaging in these kind of broadly socially beneficial programs. Um, And I guess the root of some of my skepticism is just that that's just not what these companies are set up to do. They're set up to make money for their shareholders. And that's where Mm -hmm. they have legal obligations. And most of the folks I know who work in the sector have felt kind of ethical obligations to maximize shareholder value. So it's always been a, I've always just, it's been a little unclear to me how much of this is just kind of. PR and how much of this is, is real. So $0.05, five cents on the dollar sounds like, sounds like a lot. Does that seem like the kind of thing that we could expect in future transactions? Or again, is it a is it a consequence of a, of a particular political moment? Or, or maybe the, you know, the, I guess the bond, I don't know who the bondholders were in this instance, if it was held, you know, kind of broadly by lots of different parties, or if it was uh, kind of concentrated in a few actors, that might make it a little easier to arrive in a negotiation.
2: Mike, can I let me ask um, Lee before you answer? Let me add to Mike's question because I'm I'm a little uh, uh, puzzled and intrigued by what you got in relief. So one point I think it's not, what is important to realize here is that it's not just that they got five cents more, or at least according to some of the press accounts. But they got something like 35% more of the votes. So Belize needed the votes of the creditors. It needed 75% of the votes of the creditors to engineer this exchange. They only had about 50% who had agreed. And then there was this slew of articles in the financial press uh, who usually never report about little Belize getting into yet another default. But they had all these articles that uh, praised the deal and talked about how cool it was and would have these beautiful pictures of scuba diving in the hmm. coral reefs. And, and then they got another 35% of the votes in a matter of days. And I'm used to these sovereign debt restructurings taking years Years to get agreement, and they got this in days. So, Lee, this is both amazing and also reason to think, okay, how many countries are going to have such pretty coral reefs. And, you know, all the hedge fund people I know, they like to go on vacation scuba diving. So they sort of imagine themselves scuba diving by the pretty coral reef and saying, I saved this coral reef. But, you know, if you're talking about Lebanon's debt restructuring, I don't think hedge fund guys are going to (laughs) Lebanon for
1: vacation. Uh, Guys, let me rain a little bit on this parade. I don't think it's possible in the Belize transaction to quantify Exactly mm. how much this was worth, uh, and and I don't think you can say it it was worth five cents. Inevitably, in negotiation, you come down to the final bit. The, there'll be a difference between the bid and the asked. Uh, in this case, because we were talking about a discount level, uh, one side says I can afford to pay uh 51 cents and no more and the other side says uh we have to have uh uh, 60 cents uh some some on the other side say 65 cents um and so it's a question of bridging the inevitable gap uh and the way this technique can be used most effectively is for the sovereign borrower when they reach that point in the negotiation yes. to say we can put a sweetener on the table that is not quantifiable. It isn't money, but it is glory. It is a vindication of your wanted uh, social environment uh, uh, principles. Uh, and therefore, it is worth something to you, but I can't tell you precisely how much. And so that, that's the use of the technique. If the other side then says, okay, we'll accept uh, these terms uh, and won't fight anymore, uh, that's the benefit. But, but how much absent that, how, how, how much the negotiation would have gone on for and what the final result would be, no one will ever know. Mm-hmm. But uh, there is one other thing. Me too and I put an op-ed into the Financial Times in, in the spring with a, a technique, a different technique that is arguably applicable to a much, much, much broader range of sovereign debt workouts. And that was one which said that uh, typically a, a debtor country will have to issue a new debt instrument. Uh, in the restructuring, the new debt instrument will reflect the debt relief that it has negotiated, either a principal haircut, a lower coupon, or a d- delay in maturity. So the, the country will now be obliged to pay in foreign currency the interest on the new debt instrument. And what we argued was that you could give the debtor country the option to discharge a portion of that foreign currency denominated stream of payments, discharge it in local currency, if the local currency is invested in a project that the creditors have approved. Mm. The logic of it is this. Every creditor going into a sovereign debt workout knows that it has to give debt relief. The whole... The whole raison d'etre of a debt restructuring from the creditor's standpoint is that you want to improve the debtor country's debt dynamics so that it can return to voluntary market operations and pay you back the residual amount of your claim. That's why you do it. And therefore, from the creditor standpoint, the only issues are how do you do it and how much debt relief are you getting? Uh Well, uh, a country has an external debt problem because it lacks the foreign currency needed to repay its external debt. You can improve the country's debt dynamics by saying uh, you can discharge a portion of that foreign currency denominated liability by by paying local currency. That improves their debt dynamics. So it achieves the creditor's objective, which they know they're going to have to accede to one way or the other. Uh, But the creditor said, invest it in uh, an approved project. It could be environmental. It could be something else in the debtor country. Good for the debtor, Uh, because it is saving the precious foreign currency. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also, unlike a payment on an international bond, normally the payment goes out of the country. It's gone. It's a deadweight loss. Mm -hmm. In this instance, you're taking some of that uh, payment and discharging it by investing local currency in your own country. Mm. Uh, So... That's a that's a technique, I think, that has far, far broader application. Belize was unusual because it was a cash buyback, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and, and you very rarely see those. And the
0: Nature Conservancy was involved, so you had this third party that was exactly. kind of- Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And w- whereas what you're describing could be worked out between the, just the debtors and the creditors. So I can imagine a, a criticism of this kind of deal, um, even though, obviously- uh, Has a lot of advantages in terms of achieving debt relief and um, you know, seeing expenditures on socially desirable projects. But one concern I could imagine folks raising is that there's kind of a neo, you know, colonial dynamic here, where you have you know hedge fund folks you know who like to scuba dive, you know, forcing Belize to spend more money on coral reef protection than it otherwise would, or, you know, um, you know, creditors in general, you know, dictating how, um, how these sovereigns, uh, you know, are going to spend their, their, their money. Um, And of course, there's a, there's a North South dynamic here and a dynamic between developed and developing countries. And I, I'm curious if, if either of you have thoughts about, about that dynamic, is that, is that an overblown critique or is there something to it?
2: I think this is one of the reasons why the environmental part of ESG is much more likely to work, uh, because there one can see it as a global public good that we are all going to benefit from together. To the extent the money is going into making sure they have these countries have better democratic mm-hmm. institutions, or treat mm-hmm. women better, or you know have uh, better judiciary. The, the, that all looks awfully like interference with their domestic structures, regardless of how odious we may think their domestic mm-hmm. structures are, and. We didn't, I mean, it's sort of, you know, Belize is an exceptional case, but I don't think that we've heard any complaints that the coral reefs are going to be preserved. I mean, there's something about the way in which people across the spectrum were enthusiastic about what happened that I think is about the environment. And I don't know, I, you're the environmental expert, so I don't actually know how do you articulate why that worked. I'd be curious as to what you think.
0: I will answer that question in a second. Um, Leeds, you got cut off right when you were about to start answering the question, so I wanted to kick it back to you. We've got a little
1: bit from me too. Okay. and then... uh, there's, a, there's a simple answer to your question, Mike. The way you phrased it was, and I'm going to paraphrase it, uh, how do these... Foreign creditors get off telling the debtor government how it should spend its money. Mm -hmm. And the fallacy in that sentence is it isn't the debtor country's money, Mm -hmm. it is the creditor's money. Mm -hmm. The debtor country has solemnly promised to repay these creditors a certain amount of money over a certain period of time. That is the creditor's legal entitlement. If the creditor says, we will accept uh, less money from you if you devote uh, the the balance to this purpose, it is the creditor's saying that you may use their money. Mm. Uh, And surely that's, uh, within their entitlement to do
0: yeah that's interesting that's that's that right I mean that 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 makes sense um you know I think that um, just to kind of me too's point was kind of broadly that the maybe the environment is special on some of the you know the optics here that if you know even the under the kind of theory that you're you're offering that this is the really that we're talking about is the creditor's money then um you know maybe there's something paternalistic even of saying you know we're willing to spend our money (laughs) you know to benefit you belize whereas it is more in keeping with with that theory i think to say you know we want to spend our money in a way that creates some joint value. And I think that's probably a a, a dynamic in the environment that maybe is a little different. Um, Still, you know, reforming the, um, you know, creating a fund to, for, for additional infrastructure investment uh, could be jointly beneficial if it puts a country in a better position to pay, pay its debt going forward. But maybe there's something more immediate, um about the environment it's also very possible that it's just a symbolic matter um that um there's kind of a feel-good side of the environmental investment that a fund for infrastructure wouldn't have
1: yeah uh, again i think it goes back to the effort that's being made now to convince every citizen of this planet that we are jointly invested in the health of the planet and uh, that uh, for some of us uh to exploit the environment uh is injurious to all the rest of us and therefore you know look i grew up in pittsburgh pennsylvania a very long time ago and i remember uh the local uh industrialists who took the Mm -hmm. position that if God did not want me to pollute the Monongahela River, why did he put it in front of my factory?
0: Yeah, and there's surprisingly still people who think along, yeah, <laughs> along I these lines,
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, hopefully that that's views as somewhat more in, a, in the in the minority than it, than it was it was in the past. Um, you know, it's interesting like, that some of the cultural divides on, on on environmental issues, and one one of the things I think is also fascinating. in This area is, you know, it, it would have been, you know this is a broader thing, but I think that, you know, back, back then, you know, where would the banks have been on a question like that, right? Where would the kind of the, the the financial industry would have probably been more on the side of the, the, the industrialist um, Mm -hmm. by the river. And these days finance is, is, is a pretty green um, culturally, a pretty green group of people um, who, who are concerned about the environment and that, um, you know, that just as from a personal level, I think many people are. So I, th- I think that's an interesting development that we've seen in the past, you know, recent decades.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, to set it in context, uh, the phenomenon you've just described is one in which a lender, uh, able to lend, let's say, to a polluting steel mill, and earn a higher interest rate on that loan refrains from doing so mm-hmm. for these motivations. The phenomenon we've been discussing for the last hour is one in which a lender entitled to receive a higher interest rate voluntarily forbears from asking for all of it if, uh, uh, if the. Uh, difference is invested in an approved project in the debtor country it's it's the same thing from the mm-hmm. investor's standpoint in one case he's forbearing from collecting money he's already owed in another case he is forbearing from lending money that he knows he could lend and earn a higher yeah. return than he does uh, to a green project
0: yeah and you know we got it i mean i, I Again, even even with some skepticism on on this kind of ESG movement, I think you know my own my own view on this, for for what it's worth, is that it's it's ultimately it's a it's a it's a sign of hopefully shifting politics, and and will likely be part of you know a broad social response to um, to environmental problems. Um, well. I think that i've I've taken enough of your guys' time. I think we could continue talking for hours about these really fascinating issues. So I think we'll I will just uh, end with uh, with a, a a big thank you for um, for the conversation today. I learned a lot, and um, it's all really fascinating stuff and and also thank you for for working on these really interesting issues and and staying engaged on on all of these uh, all these questions.
1: Thanks, Mike. I uh, enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Mike. That was a treat.